Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Willow Watch, a podcast dedicated to the 1988 Lucas fantasy epic Willow, in which breaking news comes in all sizes and obsessive fandom is the greatest magic of all. Willow Watch is a special presentation of State of the Empire, Consequence of Sound's Lucasfilm podcast where we look for news in Alderaan places. Most of the time, yeah, we're talking about Star Wars, but in this episode, we're ditching the galaxy far, far away to go beyond good. Beyond evil. Beyond your wildest imagination. Because this is Willow's 30th anniversary. Hi, I'm Kat. Hey, I'm Doug. Hey, I'm Matt. We often have Willow Watch segments on State of the Empire, but 2018 is Willow's 30th anniversary, so we're doing as many full-length episodes as time will allow and recapping all the discoveries we've made about the film in our past six years of podcasting. We're digging deep into Willow's history. The people who made it, the world it takes place in, the media times, the expanded universe, and all the stuff you might not know about it, which, at least in our case, was a surprising amount. Willow Watch started with us investigating the possibility that, now that Disney owns Lucasfilm, could there be a new Willow film, or maybe comics, or a TV series? And the answer, much to our surprise, has been yes, likely. At this moment, conversations are actually happening. Yeah, last episode we recounted all the times over the years that a Willow film sequel has bubbled up in conversation from people like Warwick Davis, Val Kilmer, all the way up to Ron Howard recently saying that the idea is actually getting kicked around. And it's even happened again in the few weeks since our last episode. Costume designer Alex Kavanaugh tweeted to Ron Howard, more Willow please, to which Ron replied, we are seriously exploring it with Lucasfilm folks. Fingers crossed. I never thought this day would come. <laughs> so well, what what level are we at now, Doug? Like still at Tiger? We're at Tiger. I think we're staying at Tiger until we hear something. Okay. Because literally anything can happen. They can say, ah, it fell through. Nothing's happened. Then we can lower the level. Phew. Or they say, oh my gosh, we're going to start a thing. And then it goes up. So we got ourselves a fully nude Finn Rizal. <laughs> yeah, that's the, yeah, that's the next level up. So unbelievably, we are holding at Tiger in a Tiger holding pattern <laughs> until <laughs> until something happens. Well, in six years of talking about Willow 2 maybe being a thing, not surprisingly, there was a lot of time where nothing was going on, and that's when we got to digging deeper into Willow. And we found some pretty crazy stuff. Like, we all love Willow, but we had no idea how much Willow there was actually out there. Well, it got its own sort of expanded universe continuity, and when you start looking into, like, the film with deleted scenes and the adaptations, you really got to forget all that you know or think you know. Because what we've learned about all the other stuff going on in the world of Willow has completely affected the way that we watch the movie. 
So in this episode, we're going behind the scenes and sharing with you our Willow discoveries. The deleted scenes, the novelization, the animated series that never happened, the source book. Prepare to take your first step into a larger world. Which isn't a Willow quote, but it's very appropriate. Smaller world didn't sound cool enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I read the novelization of Willow by Waylon Drew based on a screenplay by Bob Dolman from a story by George Lucas. That's a lot of degrees of separation there. <laughs> so I thought, oh, this will be an interesting train wreck. Perfectly good book. And as far as uh, me looking for insights into the world of Willow, I found a lot of insights in this. Really? Yeah, I got a lot of notes. What we have here, as I interpret it, this novelization is based on the screenplay and a whole Bible's worth of notes. It amounts to a three-hour version of Willow with a far more epic scope than the film was able to do within budget constraints. I'm sure that a lot of these things didn't really make it to any kind of, you know, shooting script or anything. I read the novel and I was like, all that felt right. I know there was some there was some stuff that I know. I know it was different. But there was some other stuff I was like, is that how it happened? And then I watched the film the first time in ages. And uh, what it had become in my mind was much bigger than what actually ended up on the film. And Ron Howard admits it's kind of quaint by today's standards. But they were definitely, if, if this novelization, if it can be attributed to be the vision of Willow, this is on the level of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. It could have been that if technology and budget allowed it to be, I suppose. And also timing. That's awesome. And that just speaks leagues for what Willow has to offer, should there be a Willow sequel, for example. I'm going to get the rundown and let you guys know about the weird shit that could have possibly been in Willow. Okay. I'm going to start with some bullet points. Trolls. We know trolls. They, uh-huh. they climb all around Tyr's Lean when it's all destroyed. They work in Nakmar and they can speak. Holy oh shit. boy. They're like servants. They're like low-grade slave like, servants. Like the orcs in Lord of the Rings, basically? Yeah. There's, I don't know if this is either like a race of people or a clan or something. They're called Poas. And they're these bald, tattooed, disgusting guys. In the book, they actually camp out at the um, Daikini Crossroads, the, the Nelwyn party. And uh, these Poas come up and they find a skull and kind of play football with it a little bit. And then they, uh, they see Mad Mardigans in the cage and they light him on fire. And, what? And the, what? And the Nelwins, the, and he's got all these like rags on him. He's like screaming. The Nelwins put him out. And they're they're also in the tavern scene as well. I don't know what they are, but they're these like brutish, awful people creatures. Mims, Willow's daughter, she has premonitory dreams. She's got these drawings of a two-headed dragon, and she tells she tells Willow that he's gonna be away a long time. He's like, I'll be all we'll be right back. I just gotta give the baby the first daikini I see. And she's like. No, you won't. And uh, so there's Ties in with there. him being like a sorcerer. It's like in the bloodline or whatever. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I mean, maybe they cut it out because the Mims actress, she was a she was very, a very or, bad child actor. Or it's three minutes of who cares. Yeah. <laughs> the Eborsik, which is the uh, the name of the two-headed dragon, the name of it is a, a mashup of Siskel, Siskel and Ebert. Yeah. It was placed in the moat by Bav Morda as another trap for Tira's lean. Um, the transmuting the troll into it. For I mean, the film. It, it looked it looked great, but it was for the film. And both those scenes happen. The troll turns into jelly, and Willow kicks it in the moat, and then the Ebersick wakes up. It's better in the film, but it's hmm. interesting that they almost described the Ebersick like like a Cthulhu, like an, a, a creature so old, and Bav Morda made it sleep that there. That would have been freaking awesome. Um, slight point. Apparently, the design of the dragon was based on Ron Howard's brother. Yeah, I, that's that's not a nice thing to say that's to somebody. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> When Willow's like, on my farm, we have gophers. And he talks about how they need to hide in the pits and all that. Yeah, it yeah. Was, it was actually hedgehogs. It was hedgehogs in the book, which makes more sense. It's a, you know, medieval European setting. Where did the hell the gophers come from? It's a, it's a weird throwaway line, mm-hmm. but an odd choice. General Kale is described as a face thickened and brutalized by savagery, a face scarred and broken, a face beyond all pity. 
Now, underneath that skull mask, Kale is not a looker. He is not, however, horrifically deformed. Right, no. right. And the High Aldwin wields some serious magic. He likes to make grand entrances. And when he shows up before the Nelwyn party leaves, like they're next to a bunch of standing stones and stuff, he's actually melded into the stone. He comes out and says a funny thing about it's cold and then drinks some mead and offers it people. Like he's, <laughs> he's like just transforming the things and poofing in and out of stuff. Weird. Yeah. Tirislene, it's established as being a city so beautiful and perfect that no one believes it, was, it existed anymore though it was only hidden from the world a generation prior, because you can imagine that Tirislene's banishment from people's minds is as old as Sorsha is, because Sorsha's father is the king of Tirislene, and Bavmorda is, in fact, her biological mother. Um, Ooh, okay. <laughs> Tirislene is meant to be far grander than it was in the film. I mean, in the film, you get, like, a courtyard, a very quaint castle. I guess they just didn't have the budget for it. It's yeah, meant to be yeah. big. It's meant to be, like, the... Th- Gondor. <laughs> like, Gondor big, yeah, yeah. yeah. Elora, she's tapped into what they call the mystery, which is all of magic itself. And she is, in fact, as our other sorceresses, looked over by animals. Animals are, are drawn to her when she's flowing down the stream like animals help her. And at one point after the uh, cart chase, a doe comes when she's hungry and actually offers her her milk. And then Laura Dannon nurses on a doe. This is some badass fantasy stuff right here. Like, this is like real deal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The ritual of obliteration. They always just call it the ritual in the movie. It's actually described by Chalindria. This is a line, a throwaway line that should have just been in the film because it would have made the stakes and even Bavmorda's demise make a lot more sense. The ritual is the wiping out of all you were since the earth began, of all you are, of all that you have been. So that's why they need to keep the baby alive. That's why they have to do the ritual, because it completely eliminates Alora Dannon from existence, thereby Xing out the prophecy from ever having. So happened. she could never be born again and still rise up. Exactly. Jesus. Speaking of the prophecy, the prophecy was delivered by Finn Rizel to Bavmorda prior to their sorceress's duel, which inevitably banished Finn Rizel. Mm-hmm. Following meeting Chalindria, the fairy goddess, Willow and the Brownies see the battle that wiped out the Galadorn troops. They're wandering back. They end up like right on the threshold of this battlefield within a stone's throw from Kale. And uh, they actually see the battle, kind of get caught up in a little bit of it. And uh, it reinforces the stakes a little bit and maybe even plays out more gruesome than the PG rating would have allowed for. Right, yeah. Uh, And definitely a shot that is short and unnecessary for the overall story and complicated. So it made sense they cut it. But as you can see, the scope of Willow could have been much grander. Oh, absolutely. Um, Volknar, the leader of the Nelwyn Guard, has been beyond the Daikini Crossroads. He tells them in a campfire scene that he went in search of Tirislene, and he never made it there, but he did adventure all around the world, and even to hang out with some elvish metal workers up in the mountains where they crossed through to go to Tirislene, and they gave him an elven ring that has on it the same symbol as on Alora Dannon's arm. He's like the surrogate Bilbo Baggins then, I guess? I guess so. I mean, he's like he's, little, he's little bit. an actual adventurer, not a reluctant adventurer, but like someone who actually embraced... Went on an adventure to the tall people land, came back with a ring. That's all I'm saying. It's like, <laughs> sure. <laughs> and maybe that's why they cut it. I don't know. <laughs> Three times throughout the book, you get these asides that are like called Volknar's tale, Chalendria's tale, Frangine's tale. And they're not necessarily tales about those people, but they're tales that they tell. Volknar's happens to be about him. Chalendria's tale is about the entire history of Bavmorda and Finrizel, which is very important. Finrizel was the youngest sorceress ever. From her birth, all who attended on her mother knew she participated in the mystery, for the animals came to her. She traveled the world on animals' backs and was instructed by sorcerers from all over as a child. She would disappear, and her parents knew that because she was magically bound, 
it was okay for her to disappear, but she would go off and travel the world and be schooled and so on. But as she grew older, the world of man kind of encroached on her fantasy world that she was living in. And she met a boy who happened to be the Prince of Tirislene. Um, And uh, Bavmorda, she also came from Tirislene. And she was similarly gifted, not quite as young as Finn Rizel, but Bavmorda's power found tides deeper than Rizel's and blended into darker seas. Bavmorda and her power seduced the prince away from Finn Rizel, and they did savage things like make love in caves and so on. And uh, <laughs> just drop it in there. Like <laughs> it's yep. Um, <laughs> in losing the prince, Rizel turned back to sorcery and rose over passion to compassion, and became a stronger sorceress for it. But Bavmorda. When the king and queen died, she took over Tirislene. Animals started dying. Monsters started living in the crevices of the place. And eventually she started building Nakmar and abandoned it. And she sealed Tirislene inside of a labyrinth, which you see in the film for a hot second. And they don't really comment on it. The labyrinth is in the form of a canyon. Yeah, like that canyon they went yeah. through. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. That canyon they go through, though they talk about it in the book, like, you know, leading up to it. Oh, yeah. And Tirislene's inside of a labyrinth. It doesn't really play out. It's just a canyon that they're in. But it is, in fact, a uh, impassable labyrinth that they get through. And at the end of it, they find um, a wall of thorns that they have to set on fire using an a incantation that Willow does. And Mad Morrigan has to join in in a, a charm spell because they need combined powers, and that, which was weird. They jump through the burning wall, and then it's left to be a burning wall so the Nakmar troops can't get through. It's like The more you keep telling me, the more I'm just like, this is freaking crazy, <laughs> yeah. but in a good way. Yeah. Frangine's tale is actually a tale about Mad Morrigan's origin story, which is admittedly the weakest link in the entire thing. Mad Mardigan's story, it's, it's passable, but it's, at one point it's so confusing that I, the book doesn't even actually offer an answer for it exactly. He's, uh, Mad Mardigan and Eric both grew up in Galadorn. Mad Mardigan was a reckless son of noble folk, and he ran off to, with the Galadorian horsemen and plainsmen. He learned to hunt and fight from them. He became a knight at 12. Um, <laughs> Figures. Uh, but in time, he was disgraced, and his knighthood oath was broken, and this is over a girl. And if I summarize it like that, that's sure, whatever. They attempt to describe that whole thing. He had some, he had some crazy dream and the girl was a princess and he, he wasn't supposed to tell her about the dream, but he told her about the dream and then she broke up with him and she told the other people and then, ah, his, and then his oath was broken. And I'm like, I can't, I reread it several times. I can't make sense of it at all. Whatever. Then he gallivanted around being a selfish adventurer or whatever. Eric tries to bring him back in the fold. Um, they're fighting Knockmore troops and Mad Mardigan deserts him in battle. And that's why they that's got bad the blood. Cage. That's not yeah. why he's in the cage. That is why they have bad blood, though. Oh, okay, okay. Um, yeah, it's the animosity that leads up to, you know, them kind of reconciling. And then one last cool thing. They actually end up going to the cave that the elves lived in, the metal workers that um, Volknar was talking about. On their way to Tira's Lean, they're all skeletons. They've all been brutalized. They're all dead. So I was reading all this, and I'm like, okay, either this, this author, um, Wayland Drew, maybe he took some liberties. I don't know. But it seems to me it's so rich, and it makes so much sense that he must have been presented with a script and a Bible for the film. Right, right. I thought, oh, shit, we should interview him. Unfortunately, he's dead. Oh. He died in the, in the late 90s. So that's off the table. Maybe we'll find some answers someday and figure out how much of this is authentically true to, to it. But I feel like this book can be trusted to be the ultimate version of what Willow could have been. What the original idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pretty cool stuff. You sold me. I'm going to check it out. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I mean, I loved Willow before. It already seemed like it was just part of a rich tapestry. And now it's just more of the tapestry has been revealed. Yeah, it, it's neat to know that they were at least thinking about making a film in the scope of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings film, whether or not they could attempt it. They got as close as they could. I mean, and it for was its awesome. time, was, it kind of was. Yeah. Now, did I imagine this? Or is there, in fact, a tabletop role-playing book? Shut up. What? 
Did I, I'm asking. Did I don't I, know. Did I, I have I, no idea. I could have sworn that I, I saw online that there is a tabletop role playing book for the for the world of Willow. And that's not it. what it's called. But this universe is so freaking huge. I had no idea that it went so far beyond. Well, turns out the source book was a thing. <laughs> yeah, we'll get into that <laughs> later in this episode and even beyond this episode. The source book is a very important thing. Yeah. I forgot how kooky and interesting novelization stuff was. That's the kind of stuff I'd like to see in a new movie. I think that image of nursing on a doe isn't going to go away anytime soon for me. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> it's actually kind of an awesome image of like the richness of the magic in this world, like the connection to the natural world. I guess it's not something that I'm, I'm accustomed to seeing in mass marketed fantasy worlds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's just surprised that was part of the novelization. Kind of cool. Yeah. You know, Elora and her connection with the animals is something that happens again and again and again. And something that I think is actually woven into the fabric of the film and just didn't end up making it to screen time. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't even imagine what staging that scene would have looked like. But... <laughs> do you think if they make another Willow movie, do they automatically have to make it Bryce Dallas Howard as a Laura Dannon? Wow. Had never crossed my mind. That's, a, that's an interesting proposal, Doug. <laughs> Has Ron directed her before? I don't know. I think by this point in both of their careers they've earned that nepotism like nepotism is probably the wrong word <laughs> but like bryce dallas has accomplished a lot without him sure in the director's chair now like it's totally acceptable that a father could direct the daughter when both have had notable careers separately yeah and that was an early episode of state of the empire that we dug into the novelization we didn't know much else right but also matt you weren't on it had you heard any of that stuff before no well, I'm sorry we were holding out on you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, that was terrific. That was the voice of Tony, who's the co-creator of Lightning Dogs, the animated series that Doug and I are developing. We're all co-creators, the three of us. I didn't even remember he was on old episodes of State of the Empire. Turns out he was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't always this way. This is how it's always been since before. <laughs> yeah, we'll just special edition everything. We'll edit Matt in and oh, ha boy. have him read all Tony's lines. <laughs> I get to be CG Java. <laughs> the texture. Java. So in that same episode, there was also another huge thing tying into deleted content, but deleted content actually from the film because a mere five months after Disney bought Lucasfilm, it was released for the first time in HD on Blu-ray with all new special features for its 25th anniversary, including full deleted scenes that had never been released before. Willow came out on Blu-ray. We demanded it, and it happened. <laughs> and it's, it's excellent. It's marvelous. You're welcome. That's why we're now shifting demand to a Mad Mardigan spinoff. <laughs> it was all because of Willow Watch. We'll take Mardigan for it. And, 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 a, and a, a Sorsha spinoff. That's right. So the biggest thing about this Blu-ray, deleted scenes. Deleted scenes with some crazy stuff that I knew were considered, but I didn't know that actually made it into the film. Stuff that showed up in um, the Marvel Comics adaptation of Willow and uh, stuff that I'd heard talked about, like a scene with a uh, fish boy. That mm -hmm. was trippy. Yeah. yeah. And Sorsha's uh, Subplot with Sorsha's father. The DVD features are good. They featured, it's got two featurettes from the previous DVD edition. A piece about uh, morphing software and how Willow basically pioneered it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. more or less that's great and then there's also a uh, a featurette that was like a probably made for tv on hbo behind the scenes thing it's okay it's very much of its time and it's far less a in-depth behind the scenes featurette than i would wish for though if you miss the guy who did the inner world 
he yeah. does narrate it. So I love that his narration of that little behind the scenes thing started with in a time of endless sequels and spinoffs and unoriginal ideas comes Willow. I'm like, that sounds a lot like now, <laughs> which is why we need a sequel to Willow now. Exactly. <laughs> Without a doubt, the fish boy scene takes the cake for all the deleted stuff. I didn't realize they filmed the damn yeah, thing. Yeah. Uh, and it almost killed Warwick Davis because he's not a strong swimmer. <laughs> when they're at the fishing village and uh, Willow's about to go to the island where Finn Rizal has been exiled, he encounters this weird boy who tells him not to take the boat out. And then the island the- is cursed. You'll never make it. The boy disappears. Boy comes back when he's got Finrazal on the boat, and he's got crazy teeth and webbed hands, and he then Willow knocks him back, and then all of a sudden, oh my god, it's a fish. A big a big fish. Um, big scary fish. And it, it failed miserably. They edited the scene together with what they had. Oh, it does not look good. Mm. According to Ron Howard, they were experiencing a lot of the same problems that Steven Spielberg experienced with Jaws, where they just could not get the fish to look convincing. I really like what the scene has to offer. Reading it in the book, I can tell that there were a lot of things that needed to be different. Maybe it's just the book's ambiguous, but uh, the kid turns into a, a man-sized fish. In the book, I think it's uh, meant to be a much bigger fish, like a, right. like a swallow-the-boat kind of a fish, which Willow happens to turn it to stone with the acorn. And the plot with Sorcia's father in the novel really well played out. The actual final result where she, like, she sees her father imprisoned in the courts and all that, cheesy, bad, not yeah, good. you can see why they cut it out, yeah. He's back, he's like, Sosha, I'm alive in the book. Help me. And, and, he, and he's just hanging out like in the court of Tira's lean in the book. She wanders into his chamber and uh, she's kind of like blacked him out of her memory. And then she sees him and he's still as young as he was when Bavmorta transmuted Tira's lean. Mm. So he's still got her red hair. He's still as she remembered him as a child. And that dialogue's there, but it's kind of in like a maybe like she hears it in her heart or her mind rather than. He's like literally like, talking. Yeah. I'd imagine that that was due to budget constraints because you're not, you have to build a throne room. Right. And, you know, and then have her come in just for the one scene. You're going to build a whole throne room just to have her walk in there and have a, a thought conversation, you know, for a subplot. You know, makes sense. Yeah. I got to say, one of my favorite deleted scenes from the Blu-ray is the explanation yeah. as to where the third acorn went. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, the fish that was something scene. that yeah. I was, I, not even the fish scene. I just want to know where the fuck that acorn was. He gave him three. He only used two. It just didn't use the third one. It fell if he dropped it in the water. No, I mean, I mean, in the actual final cut of the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where that scene doesn't exist. He wanted exist. to use it to get stoned later. Uh, <laughs> God, Tony. <laughs> I, remember, I actually remember growing up watching Willow, and in the end, I mean, my dad and I, we loved the movie. We watched it countless times. But every time when Willow would throw the acorn and uh, uh, Morta would catch it in her hands or stone, it's like, oh man, it's actually, is it really going to have an effect? And then she sort of shakes it off. My dad goes, now why did he throw the rest at her? Well, throw the rest at her other hand. Then what's she going to do? I'm like, that's a good idea. Why did he do that? Now we know. One of the unique things about Willow, when we talk about over the course of Willow Watch, that certain sequences ended up being less than envisioned. What's funny to me is it's not until it's brought up do I realize that the vision was small as presented on screen. Like to me, the movie's always been bigger. And I don't know if that's just the success of Willow to allow me to dream big, despite the fact that it was being done, you know, smaller scale than they'd hoped or what it is, but uh, something special about Willow that like, it may not have the scale of a Peter Jackson epic trilogy, but yet in my mind, when I was that young, it certainly did. Yeah. And it is surprising because every time I watch it again, which is intermittent, I'm always delighted by the intimacy of the sequences and the scenes and how the characters interplay together. And there is big stuff going on. But it actually gives your mind enough room to fill in blanks that you don't even perceive are there. 
You don't think it's missing pieces, but it is missing pieces, but it's also so well-made. You just have no idea. I think that has a lot to do with starting in the Nelwyn village with Nelwyn characters. This is who you're anchored to. This is the point of view that you're going to be viewing the rest of this world. Willow is going to be your guide. And when they first set out on their adventure, you have the sweeping music and they're just crossing over waterfalls, over, you know, fallen trees and stuff. And it seems so epic, but it's like for Nelwyn's, this is epic because the world is twice as big as it would be to you or me. Mm-hmm. So even just the journey itself is already a huge deal. And they hadn't even met a Daikini yet. And then once they get to the crossroads, it's like, oh, shit, we don't even belong here. We've made it way far. Like it just The movie constantly reopens itself to new possibilities. For every place they go to, the world's that much bigger. And not just because of that's what a fantasy thing is what you're expecting, but because people that are Nelwyn-sized are getting into further away from home, further away from home, it's even bigger. But for some reason, I don't feel the same way with Lord of the Rings. Even though you're following Frodo, every place they go to, it doesn't feel bigger. It's like once they're in the end of the Prancing Pony, you know, it's like, all right, there's Aragorn. He's with him now. And that's just the world. It doesn't feel like it gets bigger. It just feels like it gets more dangerous. Whereas for some reason with Willow, it gets bigger. I will say that is like actually one of the one things that I did not care for in Fellowship of the Ring is starting us out with the prologue. And, and I say this about a lot of movies. This is not a Fellowship of the Ring issue. The movies start too big. And then don't allow the journey to build up like a good like JRPG would, you know, like yeah. you always start start small and then by the end of it, you're saving the universe. Fellowship of the Ring has that prologue to show you, oh, my gosh, we're on a huge epic scale. And it is a very good prologue. Yeah. But then it removes the magic. And that's actually how I felt like I had a huge problem with that with Doctor Strange, that they showed us what powers were capable of in the beginning of the movie and then didn't allow us to build into the wonderment of the world that Stephen Strange was discovering. That's a good point. Willow does that fantastically. Like it starts small and then just keeps getting bigger until like you really are fighting for the fate of this entire world, essentially. Yeah, that's an extremely good point. Yeah. I mean, this movie has a little opening crawl that says, you know, time of darkness and evil imagine kind of things, but you don't really get the scope of it. And then the literal very first thing you see is, a birth and a dungeon, <laughs> you know, you don't really see magic. And all you see is evil queen, death dogs. They want this baby dead. And then from there you follow the baby, which is even smaller than the no ones, <laughs> you know, you know what I'm saying? And it goes downstream and then up oh, the no village. There it is. And then from there, everything just grows and gets huge. Yeah. And it's totally fine to tell me what the scope is, but to show you everything that it's capable of is, to me, not as effective. And I think Willow does it the right way. Yeah. Like, like if the movie started with Bath Morda and Finn Rizal fighting, and then she turns her into the possum, and she just morphs, you do that morphing effect, and it's, ah, now you're banished to that island. You'll never win, Bath Morda! And this, as, as Bath Morda's, like, sailing away from the island. And then it just says, you know... 20 years later, and then the baby's born in the dungeon, you'd be like, what the fuck? That's like, a pretty dope prologue, but it really wouldn't have helped the film it, much. Oh, it would, but it would have it would have been herky-jerky, because then you're like, oh, well, I know she's going to come back. You know, I already know what Finn Rizal looks like. There's no surprise. Yeah, there's yeah. no twist. There's no mystery. And You know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. Whether or not it was intended to be that way, it works. Like, it works really well. Hmm. So that Blu-ray, Disney's logo was nowhere on that. Just 20th Century Fox, so we didn't know what to make of it. Though shortly after that, we did find out Disney does in fact own Willow. But since that Blu-ray was already in the works, they just let it come out. But it pretty much went out of print almost immediately. You can still get it on Amazon for like 80 bucks, you know, but it's the 30th anniversary (laughs) now. And we haven't heard anything from Disney. I mean, it would be easy enough. 
to just put it back on the market, one would assume. But even that, it's a good package. It was amazing to actually see those deleted scenes, but it still doesn't scratch the surface for what else is out there. For example, we know how much bigger a film Willow could have been. Willow could have been like Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings on acid. Yeah. If, if the technology and money was there to make it happen. And further proof of that we have to present today, thanks to Nerdy Show listener Mike Swabby, who sent this my way, Mobius, famous, famous, famous science fiction fantasy illustrator who's been like a, a production force behind many, many films that you know and love, like Dune and Blade Runner have all had some direct influence from Mobius. He did work for Willow, and I think it was most of it really was discarded because... Uh, it's like concept art, right? Yeah, yeah, concept art. It was very radical concept art. Some of it actually did translate, but not much of it. We'll link to where you can check out all this, but uh, just as a, as a taste, a lot of this comes from a Mobius retrospective book. I don't know which one. This is all based on the, this blog I found, a Tell Forward blog, who observed that Mobius is actually uh, very in line with George Lucas's influences. Like he's... Flash Gordon-y, you know, kind of... Uh... Well, I, I think it's more, more of his other influences, like Akira Kurosawa and his no-influenced uh, samurai films. Yeah. Uh, this guy points out that there's, there's a design for Sorsha where she's wearing a Japanese no theater mask. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, yeah, the two separate designs. Like basically, Sorsha's a katana wielding, sexy warrior woman with a mask on. Yeah, more um, Princess Mononoke than say, uh, can't remember the princess's name from Flash Gordon, but you know what I'm saying. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> there's a difference there. These illustrations are dated '86, so that kind of gives you some idea of actually this was, you know, this was, it was early into Willow development, but not too early. Kind of surprising how much of this didn't make it to the film. One of the most shocking things, there's an illustration uh, labeled King Kale. Yeah. <laughs> and King Kale is a massive king warrior, purple-skinned feline guy with a dragon tattooed on his head. Yeah, he looks like a badass. Yeah. General Kale in the film was a badass, but this King Kale is like some serious business. King Kale? I don't know what the hell that means for the story. Who the hell is King Kale? What's uh, he yeah, king of? I, I mean, he looks, he looks a little bit more regal. He's like a terrifying, you know, monster type, but he's just cool. He's a cool looking creature. There's a picture of a sea beast that is not just a fish monster. It's a straight up Leviathan. Yeah. Oh, uh, nice. And there's like a whole little rowing ship full of people confronting it with a wizard at the front, like flinging a sword around. It, lo it looks great. Everything about it. There's a grotesque obese creature on a throne of skulls. There's some kind of snake cat wizard. There's uh, two surprisingly accurate Nelwyn drawings in a different approach to brownies, including kind of a sexy brownie. Nice. Uh, there's a, and there's Two a words do, I like. Uh, <laughs> do want. Sexy brownie. And a, a, a Mad Mardigan design that's both very close to what we saw in the film, but is also heavily Japanese-influenced. He has that kind of shaved upper forehead deal, oh. and there's like one with him with like those like pointy hats. Yeah, and he's but like, he's got the braids that they kept. Yeah. Yeah. And in some of the same like outfit style. So that was the one thing it carried over, but it's interesting how much how much Japanese elements there are in this and then other weird stuff. It's super weird. It's super cool. And that along with everything else we've read and seen just points to the fact that there is so much material behind the scenes that went into the development of Willow, fleshing out the world. <laughs> just the possibilities are limitless with what you can do yeah. with this. So while Discovery of Mobius's concept art definitely was fascinating, there was some other concept art that hit the net that pointed to Willow development well after the film. April 2005, during Star Wars Celebration 3, 
George hinted at uh, in an interview, given that his company was moving into television production, there could be a Willow television series. And Warwick Davis has also expressed interest in a sequel film and has an idea for a story. For what well, did that bump the level a lot? I didn't know. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. But Warwick Davis, that's that's great. That's okay. Good news. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, where, are we at a... Can we, can we just shift to... Well, I was... You know, we were at Reappearing Piglet. Right. Where Magical Rock Dove. <laughs> where they throw the rock in the air and it turns into the bird. Go He's, in the direction the bird it's, flies. It's heading back to the village. <laughs> Ignore the bird. Follow, Follow the, the river. river. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one. I think Magical magical uh, Rock Dove. Okay, that, I'll, that, I'll take Rock Dove. Unless you got more. You got something well, else here's here the thing. Shout? And like what we what we didn't know when he said that in 2005, which I only just learned about via Wikipedia, actually, like that's completely new to me, mm. is that there's already Willow stories that were developed for television. It's already there. And what? Be- yeah, because just after Willow, there was actually an animated series being developed. In, what? In March of 2012, a Cleveland, Ohio collector named uh, Joe Freeze shared some art he'd collected from a developed but never completed Willow animated series pilot. No studio has been confirmed, but it's suspected that it was Nelvana, the guys who made droids and Ewoks. Oh, um, my God. Well, well we see how well one. that yeah. went. <laughs> <laughs> if you go to the link on this episode's page, you'll see some incredible sketches of Willow, Mad Mardigan, Sorsha, the Brownies, and an older sort of toddler-aged Elora Dannon. Yeah, that one kind of blew my mind. Like, that would be a lot of fun. Like, that could be really cool. The, the, uh, the new villains that they have in there, they look fucking awful. They look wretched. The new character designs are awful, but... The adaptations of the pre-existing film characters are really wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's this particular picture of Sorsha. It's amazing. You should get it tattooed. Everybody should get it tattooed on them. <laughs> my and- sun, my moon, my starlit sky. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone, all tattoos are on cap. 
<laughs> you know it. <laughs> or just, you know, get incarcerated. But <laughs> <laughs> no. The, the Allura Dannon being a toddler getting an adventure thing, it's it's not the greatest With the format. brownies, you know, and yeah, everything. It's, yeah. not, it's not the greatest format for, say, a, a modern-day live-action television series, but, the, I mean, the character design was good. The concept you know, for the show was this, Here's good. what I think. Take the idea of the animated Willow, give it to Gennady Tartakovsky. Yes. It's a good idea, Doug. Yeah. I stand by that. <laughs> Gonna run out of Hotel Transylvania at some point. <laughs> I mean, you think. We'll see. Yeah. You know, it, it's weird because Ron says they're looking at doing a film now. Ron, prior to this, said, hey, maybe TV. What do we want? As Willow Watch, what is our ideal next Willow thing? My heart tells me a movie would be best because it's a way to get that one more great big story. And if they decide to make more after that, that'd be great. And if even if we get nothing else after that, we at least have that. But the storyteller side of me says a TV series on the level of like a Game of Thrones would be a lot of fun. I mean, to really explore the world and, and really have characters change and develop over time and see them grow in this really awesome way. I'd settle for an animated series as well. I'd, shit, man, I'd settle for a comic book. I want the solution that's going to have the longest term success for sure, Willow. Sure, Because at this point, if they make a film, it has to succeed. And if it doesn't succeed, then there's no more Willow. Yeah. So I kind of want them to invest in a long-form television series because at least we'll get one healthy season. season yeah. You yeah. know, I think a television show right now would be great, especially you know one where they pull out all the stops, where they let it have a full cast, a full budget, make it theatrical, pump it full of money. Start it in the Brownie Village and then have it grow <laughs> from there. That'd be freaking crazy. <laughs> now that's scaling up. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's even birds are like, no, it's attacking. It's like it's a it's a beast of some kind. But in a prior clip, you heard me get excited about the Willow RPG book, and we now know that's the Willow source book, written by Alan Varney, released in September of 1988. And boy, howdy, this thing, we thought the expansion on the world of Willow in the novel was exciting. We didn't know the half of it. No. It's a book that acts as a tome of stories about the world and the characters and then also includes stats that you could translate into Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, yeah. An RPG manual for the world of Willow with no gaming system associated with it. It's interesting. There's no rules or anything like that. Just a couple of numbers to say if you want to throw this person into your campaign, this is how you do it and this would be their backstory, which is really cool. And it's concurrent with a lot of the other stuff that we've read, like in the Willow novelization, which had a wealth of extra information that clearly fit in with the world. This book actually reinforces and in some cases like improves upon, yeah. indicating that there was most definitely a massive Willow Bible mm -hmm. that could be tapped at any point in time by Disney. The character backgrounds, some of them are really in-depth in, oh, yeah. in a great way. Virgil Cut's got a short one, which is interesting. <laughs> Lug is funny. Lug, the Lug's got a funny entry in there. One of the ones that impressed me most was uh, the story of Sorsha becoming a warrior. That was a good one. Uh, Mad Mardigan, how he got in the cage. That's pretty good. Actually, Mad Mardigan has a really long, interesting story that really was heartfelt. Like, you could almost see it being its own spinoff movie. It was, it was really, really cool. In here, there are gaming notes, as explained, and mm -hmm. so I'm looking at Lug. Yeah. Who's a fifth skill level fighter, of course, has a strength of 18, intelligence of four, yeah, with of a matching charisma, skills, <laughs> stable keeping, brawling, womanizing, twisting off heads, equipment. <laughs> I like a womanizing is a skill, like he's good at it. <laughs> equipment, none needed. <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh, the quote for Lug by Mad Mardigan is, charming fellow. 
<laughs> so there's definitely like some cleverness behind this, some some humor, and it's really yeah, it's a really good source book. There's a lot. There's several pages on Von Carr. Yeah, 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 and it's really interesting. Just kind of the notes, like for Von Carr, it talks about his equipment. Von Carr always wears his silver ring. It is not magical. So it's just like there's a lot of thought put behind yeah everything in here. It's really cool. Let's pick a really minor one that's maybe a couple paragraphs or a page. Skim over it real quick and tell us something we didn't know about that character. Uh, rule of the two brownies, Fragine. Oh, okay, rule. all right. Among the simple-minded brownies, Rule is perhaps the most simple-minded. Uh-huh. Like some humans, the ones who make you wonder how they survived infancy. <laughs> rule possesses unusual luck. It has served him from seemingly certain doom a hundred times over the centuries. They're centuries old. The the brownies yeah. are hundreds of years old. While Frangine has an intelligence of ten. Rule has an intelligence of five, meaning he's still smarter than Lug. <laughs> That's not a stretch. <laughs> Your mother was a lizard. <laughs> <laughs> then they also have uh, all kinds of monsters in here, like a cyclops. Mm-hmm. Death dogs. Bavmorda bred the death dogs, her feared war and hunting dogs from wolf-like predators that hunt the western wilderness. These night hounds kill livestock and occasionally owners of livestock. When a trap or tactic brings down one hound, the rest of a pack learn to avoid the trap or defeat the tactic. Their cunning matches the rats. That's interesting. That's Hmm. cool. Because they have rat tails. Yeah. There's even two solid pages for Ethna, the midwife. Yeah. Who saved Laura Dan. Yeah, dude, there's so much rich history to go through here. She's a zero-level normal person. Yeah. (laughs) She made it pretty far, considering, I gotta say. Two months, according to this. Yeah, yeah. There is seemingly a connectivity between the contents of the Willow source book and the additional elements of the story that were placed in Waylon Drew's Willow novelization. Mm -hmm. They do confront a little bit of Mad Mardigan's origin in Drew's novel as well. It didn't quite sync up, but also kind of did. Like, it didn't fully disavow each other. It's just sort of the nature of explaining what happened to Mad Mardigan in Galadorn Mm -hmm. is somewhat confused. Mm Mm-hmm. It is a little confusing even here because after this he goes and he's like out wandering, you know, the land as like a sellsword and they have to bring him back. But then he gets kicked out again. <laughs> like, so I, I don't I don't really know how they planned it out like this. If it was meant to be like, oh, this was a disgrace, but then he left of his own accord. Well, they wanted him back so bad. And now it's even a bigger disgrace because there was a there was a mistake that was made, but he wasn't entirely to blame, depending on whose story you, you want to believe. So I don't know. It's it's an interesting back and forth that they got going with this, but it still doesn't really explain how he wound up in the you know in the crow cage. Like uh, they, they call do- him a thief. Yeah, they call him a thief in the movie, but in the book they do explain how he gets in the cage, but it has nothing to do with being a thief. He's not even accused of being a thief. It, it's like it's a completely unrelated event, and I don't know how he gets the reputation for being a thief at all. At least according to the Willow source book. I don't know which of this I should make headcanon or not because it, some of it's really good and endearing and the other is just like interesting but doesn't explain anything oh wow they got gaming notes for bavmorda oh gosh bavmorda's backstory is intense it's like it's actually kind of badass oh my gosh she's a 36th level wizard i would love to run a willow one-off rpg but the twist is uh because it's like when would it take place and I, i came up with this idea where you'll play as either maybe a wizard or two wizards and the rest would be disgraced knights of Galandorn. Because when once she takes over, those knights are disgraced and they're gone and they're split and because they've all failed or whatever. So the the quest would simply be a one-off quest where one of the party is a wizard, or maybe none of them are, but in, in, let's assume that someone wants to be a wizard. They say, look, 
I've gathered you guys here today because you're the last surviving knights of Galandorn, and I'm a mediocre wizard at best, but if you want to regain your honor, we need to assassinate Queen Bavmorda. And I know that by myself, I wouldn't stand a chance. I, I'm not even close. But if we can set a trap and we can distract her and, and her powers are spread too thin, we might get lucky. <laughs> we might have strike a killing blow. And that's enough to get people started. So basically, it's a quest where you most likely will die by the end. But I, I think it'd be really fun to play and really interesting. Instead of playing like an evil campaign where you're going to just kill people left and right here, these are good guys on an assassination mission. Right. So there could be something really cool about that, and I would love to do that. I've been thinking about doing that campaign all the time since saying that on the air. That would be probably 2013, Doug. Wow. Yeah, I've, <laughs> no, I've, I honestly, I have been thinking about it, like, every so often. I just think, oh, yeah, this, you know, I'm doing Ghostbusters. That's great. Oh, I'd love to do the Bond one, but, man, I would really love to do a Willow one. Just because just it would, just how crazy it would be. But a few months ago, I just realized, oh, I just described Rogue One. <laughs> I described Rogue One in Willow is really what it would be. I'm like, yeah, you get like four or five characters. You know, they kind of bounce off each other. Cap, Matt, you want to be Basil and Cherry? You going to be Basil and Cherry it up in here in the world of Willow? Or you think you could picture yourself more of a Cassian Andor type? Definitely a Cassian type. <laughs> I'm going to be the bull gullet. The bull gullet. <laughs> we could have a bull gullet in there. Just some other fucking monster. No, it's also called the bull gullet. I feel like the bull gullet fits. Like, definitely fits in that world. I think Bogullet fits more in the world of Willow than it did in Star Wars, if yes. I'm being completely honest. <laughs> Bogullet, yeah. no. <laughs> I have to get a Saw Gerrera. Who's a Saw Gerrera in the world of Willow? Hey, we're going way off topic. Well, let me take an opportunity right here to say, if you would like us to run a Willow RPG campaign on Willow Watch, we will fucking do it. But what we do need is we need a little bit of liquidity to do that no doubt <laughs> doug is in the middle of producing a show that he does that if you're a state of the empire listener you may or may not know about ghostbusters resurrection which is a ghostbusters role-playing audio drama that we do it's super cool it's extremely cinematic you can find it on itunes and everything but uh, that's in suspended animation right now because doug is trying to get a different job mm -hmm. and that's tied to our funds and production money and so on so if you want to help us out we're still produced by the nerdy show network we still record out of the nerdy show network studios so if we were going to do any kind of RPG audio drama production, it would definitely be a nerdy show produced show mm -hmm. distributed by Consequence, of course. And we need some funds. So do head over to patreon.com slash nerdy show and uh, vote with your dollar. And in this case, Republic credits will do fine. <laughs> <laughs> you can also give us a one-time donation at nerdyshow.com slash support or shop through our Amazon links at nerdyshow.com slash Amazon. And of course, the more people who listen, the more people who might be able to donate. Even a dollar a month is a huge, huge, huge help. So if you don't have any money to spare, do rate and review this program on iTunes. If you love this Willow Watch, then please do leave us a rating and review talking about Willow Watch. Follow us on Twitter at Willow Watch underscore. Hit us up on Facebook, State of the Empire, a Lucasfilm podcast. And if you want to rate and review these specific episodes, head to Podchaser. It's a website dedicated specifically to podcast discovery and allows you to target specific episodes not just whole series but highlight specific episodes as great shows so you like this show please give us a five-star rating and bump us up on those charts so everyone will be able to discover this and learn more about willow i still like to call it the itunes killer 
Podchaser? Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope like, so. Being able to do the single episodes is like, oh, no, this is great. Now I know where to start. I can start listening here. Yeah. Or if you love Willow and you want people to learn more about crazy stories about Willow and you want this episode highlighted, you can do that. Yeah. Now it's a jump through all the hoops that iTunes makes you do. <laughs> anyway, so what we just played that clip, that was a lot of talking about the source book itself, mm-hmm. but we haven't really given you a taste of what it really, really is all about. So this is an excerpt from Sorsha's story. An entry seemingly written, I guess, by uh, Greg Kostakayan, who's a very accomplished game designer who provided additional material for the book. When Sorsha was 15, she entered the courtyard of the garrison's encampment where soldiers drilled, chanted their oaths of loyalty to the army, and sparred with one another. One by one, the soldiers fell quiet as she walked to the center of the courtyard. I would learn to use a sword, she said. The soldiers stood, eyes averted from their princess. None moved or spoke. Until one brave lieutenant, Fennel by name, straightened his mustache, cleared his throat, and approached. "'Tis no fit occupation for a young lass," he said. Sorsha stared him up and down. "'And yet I would learn.' Fennel bobbed his head. "'As my princess commands.' Fennel taught her. They sweated through exercises in the courtyard, Hacked stumps to pieces. At first he was formal, distant, reluctant to step too close to her as he taught. But in a passage of arms there is no room for distance. He became more familiar, posing her with a touch on the arm to show her the proper stance. Throwing her to the ground in the heat of a tussle, she suffered bruises when a practice sword struck, and did her best to bruise him back. She never complained, nor did she ever miss a lesson. Sometimes they rode out together, in the clear air of a mountain summer. Fennel marveled at her skill on horseback and demanded she teach him in turn. Sorsha laughed and agreed. It was months before Bavmorda learned of her daughter's lessons in the garrison encampment. No one dared tell her. She learned of them only by accident when scrying in a pool of water with the druids. Bavmorda was horrified. Sorsha thrust and steel rang. Her braided hair was tied back. She panted slightly. Fennel stepped sideways, caught her blade with his, and threw her off her feet. Don't watch my sword. Watch my arm. Its motion foretells that of the blade, he told her. A roar sounded from the sky. Soldiers scattered as Bavmorda landed in the courtyard center, flame billowing about her. What? said Bavmorda. Are you doing? The courtyard emptied. Fennel turned white and backed rapidly towards the nearest entrance, bowing repeatedly. No one cared to witness Bavmorda's confrontation with her daughter. Learning, said Sorsha, to use a sword. Bavmorda flung wide with her hand, and Sorsha's sword flew across the yard to clang against the wall. Bavmorda drew herself up in rage, and then seemed to reconsider. A long moment passed. Finally, Bavmorda said, If you are not to learn magic... You may as well do something useful. Fine, Sorsha. Learn to use a sword. Learn to use all the weapons of war. Learn well. If you do not fail me in this, perhaps one day you will lead my armies to victory. Sorsha made no comment. With a deep clap of thunder, Bavmorda disappeared. What is your name, creature? asked Bavmorda. 
Fennel clung to the cold stone flags of the floor, shaking in terror. Fennel, your highness, he gasped. You are my daughter's teacher? Fennel broke into a cold sweat. Yes, highness. Bavmorda spoke softly. Do you care for my daughter, Fennel? Fennel dared a glimpse of the queen. How should he respond? The wrong answer could mean death. Somewhat, highness. Bavmorda stared at him for a long moment. How did you come to instruct her? She hissed. She... she entered the courtyard and said she wished to learn to fight. And you offered to teach her? She seemed to expect it. I took it as a royal command. I'm sorry if I displeased you. I meant well. Meant well? Meant well? She screamed, then got a hold of herself. Listen to me, worm. She hissed. I do not mean well. I mean to scourge the world of cowards like you. She gestured. Fennel transformed. At first with screams, and later only with indecipherable high-pitched whines, into a giant slug-like worm, a pallid cylinder of lumpish flesh. The creature writhed on Nokma's flags, then rose, passed through a window, and plunged to the ground below. Bavmorda smiled in satisfaction. It is bad to bottle up one's anger, she told herself. It's always best to express one's frustration. I'm here to instruct you, said the lieutenant. Where is Fennel? asked Sorsha. I am here to instruct you, he repeated, refusing to meet her eyes. I see, said Sorsha. There was no point in demanding an answer from her mother. Fennel might be dead. He might now be stationed at a post far away in the icy northern wastes. Her mother had taken her revenge. She attacked the lieutenant with a fury. He was forced back by her attack, then began to rally. Weapons clashing, they fought across the courtyard. She felt a hardness within her throat, but she would not cry. She had not cried in many years. Not a hundred yards away, the creature that had been Fennel tunneled through the mud. So something that's bubbled up in these discussions, which you've heard us mention in these past uh, excerpts, is the idea that there's this big story bible for the world of Willow, gathering dust somewhere in a Lucasfilm warehouse. Maybe it was created during the film's production, but it was definitely around when the novel and source book went into production, right? Well, that line of thinking sent us on a quest to speak with the man who wrote Willow. Not George Lucas, though that's certainly a conversation we'd love to have, but the screenwriter, Bob Dolman. Maybe he'd have some answers. And finally, when the bones spoke, we were able to speak with Bob. We got so much more than we expected. That big interview with him was our first standalone Willow Watch episode, and it is incredible. But were our dreams of a big Willow guide to the world that was being created while the film was being made real? That we discovered was a fantasy that we actually were making up. Yeah, I mean, maybe one exists, but it was potentially created after the film. So the dream isn't dead. And that's why in a couple Willow Watch episodes, we're going to be talking with Alan Varney, the source book author. Maybe he has some answers about where this Willow expanded universe stems from. The relationship with Bob, though, it, it's just a gift that keeps on giving. He's, he's a wellspring of information and experiences that inspire us as writers, and purely from a Willow perspective, keeps us in the know about all kinds of stuff. Yeah, if we've got a Willow question that only someone who made the film could answer, that's not a problem now. We just ask, and sometimes we get awesome letters like this. 
I got an email from Bob Dolman, the writer of Willow, the other day. Oh, yeah? Yeah, here's what he said. I'm in Stockholm, and guess what there are lots of in Sweden? Willow fans. I got asked by a small film and TV studio here called Cinematrix to give a Willow talk. It went great. The focus was on writing, kind of a writing workshop. So as I told Willow stories, people raised questions about their own creative process, and I answered only from my Willow experience. So interesting to use a movie as a template for talking about creativity and not wavering from it. It was really effective. I could tell as I was in it. And then afterwards, the feedback confirmed it. Willow, all those years ago, and yet it's still in the world, and the Stockholm people were totally into it. Ignore the bird, follow the river. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Bob, he's been digging up his notebooks from when he was writing Willow, inspired by our discussions. Notebooks specifically from 86 and 87, during meetings with uh, Lucas and Ron Howard, and also his research on medieval cultures and myths. One of the things that uh, Bob found in his notes was uh, breakdowns of several movies that he was studying for Willow. He kind of mentioned this in the Willow Watch special we did where we, uh, we interviewed him at length. He watched Three Godfathers, My Darling Clementine, because uh, apparently Ron Howard loves John Ford, and uh, Lucas's Kurosawa contributions, Seven Samurai and Yojimbo. He also had an amazing, amazing production meeting he recounted from Skywalker Ranch where George Lucas told the line producer Nigel Wool that he wants bears to play the death dogs in the film. They ended up being played by, I think, Dobermans and big rat costumes. Wool said, no, George, please, anything but bears. Bears don't run. They lumber, and they're horrible to work with. Have you considered monkeys? And Lucas said, no monkeys. We had a terrible time with monkeys on Raiders. And then Wool throws up his arms and says, he won't work with monkeys, but he'll work with bears. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I mean, that's... George Lucas is crazy, and, the, and like in kind of the best when it comes to these these collaborative films, that doesn't like, that doesn't sound the, that crazy to me. The, it's the like, best the best way possible. He want Doug. He wanted to put costumes on bears. I, <laughs> right, I get it, but like it's I mean really, it's not that crazy. Like, you're like he's a crazy man. I'm like that's not that crazy. I mean like when they were doing Close Encounters, they put a goddamn suit on a monkey and put him on roller skates and had him roll down the ramp you know of the mothership it's like that is crazy like why, why would you think a monkey on roller skates is going to do anything like that is of itself that's a comedy of errors waiting to happen it's like a three stooges movie like what did you think was going to happen because i mean look dude from star wars they put costumes on elephants elephants wore costumes in traditional indian practices anyway like elephants are mostly docile animals but bears bears are they're bears, Movie man. bears. Not like you know, capture a wild bear, trank it, drag it in, and but, throw a costume on it. Like a trained bear. They're low to the ground, but yeah. also gigantic. Yeah. Wool was right. They lumber. That's, yeah. That's a crazy thing. It just imagine, if you will, I mean, if he could pull it off, it would be... What I'm saying, what's amazing here is that Lucas's persistence of having a crazy idea and being like, no, that's what we're doing. I mean, granted, it didn't end up happening. Right. And I think we're better for it. Right. But, like, can you imagine... Can you imagine a bear that looked like a, a death dog <laughs> charging through the woods? It sounds terrifying. And I think that's what he wanted. Incredible. Just incredible. I, I really look forward to, to what more treasures come from uh, these, uh, these notebooks that Bob's digging through. There's still new Willow stuff being discovered when we least expect it. And while we know that the Lucasfilm archives has a lot tucked away, much like that animation production art out in the wild, you never know where light shedding Willow secrets are going to turn up. Something you might have missed in the world of Willow News, there's a place called Prop Store of London. It's a, it's a website. They sell awesome movie props. 
They recently had a massive auction from the Phil Tippett archives. Phil Tippett being one of the masters of special effects. All your favorite movies with special effects in them. Talking stuff from like Robocop, Predator, and tons of Lucasfilm properties as well. In this auction, there were a number of Willow items, none of which we could afford. No way, no how. But in them, in these photos, they revealed some deleted early draft content. Some fascinating, weird stuff. We have storyboards of the cart chase scene which showed a Nakmar soldier who looked more orcish than human, mm-hmm. implying that maybe maybe at one point in the script, Bav Morda was employing, you know, kind of monstrosities. We saw some other concept art where the main villain was a king looking like a lizard monster type guy. True. You know, so, yeah. and, uh, and Bob told us about how he wanted to change it from like a male to a female uh, villain. Yeah. So who knows how many changes this thing went through. Yeah. Now, if you ever thought, hey, that two-headed Ebersick dragon looks a little cock-like. Oh, then all the Ebersick concept art and storyboards are full affirmation that that thing, not the shaft, the the long wibbling shafts of their necks, but their heads specifically are a short, stubby pair of cock and balls. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Like in all of the illustrations, I'm talking storyboards, I'm talking line art. There is irrefutably simply how Lucas felt about Siskel and Ebert on the page. And these things have fucking dickheads. (laughs) It's not as the xenomorph. But like way more than the xenomorph, right, man. Right, like right, right. when you see these sketches, you'll be like, that's a dick. That's a dick. And those <laughs> and those and those cheeks are balls. And when that head explodes, those cheeks swell up. Yeah, like it's yeah. fucking hilarious. <laughs> what they were selling essentially was a big bag of dick drawings on the prop store of London. And if you've seen like the original toy of the Eber Sick, it, it's got like furry tuft on the back. I'm not kidding. <laughs> like it actually has fur on its back. It's interesting. Like, just look, look it up. You, you're looking at me like I'm, make, I'm not making it up. I know. It it up. Was, so if like, you ha- hung it upside down, it would be the pubes. Yeah. If you yeah. hung it face down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's there you it's go. weird. It's Watch a weird out. thing. Here's something that's uh, more interesting. Instead of being stolen by brownies, Elora was first stolen by elves who wanted to collect her tears. Yes, the- cry, baby. <laughs> <laughs> There's a photo of what looks like a binder that's a bunch of script elements, but it's like a page that's an outline, and it was a diagonal photo, so I've only seen half of this outline page, but I managed to make out a full paragraph, which reads, The brownies and Willow and the baby are chased by the elves. They come to a chasm which is traversed by a natural bridge in the form of a fallen hollow tree. The elves refuse to continue to pick up the chase on the tree. The reason becomes clear when trolls appear at both ends. Our band does escape, however. The brownies take Willow and the baby into the forest of the fairies. You can see a few storyboards from this sequence involving an elven village as well, where the brownies ride a stork, not an eagle, hmm. because they steal the baby with a stork. Ha ha ha. <laughs> and there were also blueprints for the Nelwyn Mines, which is fascinating because the Nelwyn Mines were mentioned in the Willow Source book and the novelization. Yeah. And apparently got all the way to the point that they were thinking about building some props, but to my knowledge, it never happened. So I did ask Bob Dolman about it. He said, once the Nelwyn village was populated by farmers and miners, and there's an allusion to this when Burglecut makes fun of Willow for being a farmer, but this wasn't a conflict we had room for and wasn't necessary. And I actually hadn't read the text on the images by the time I talked with him, so I wasn't able to ask him about the tears. Why were the elves collecting babies' tears? But I don't think he remembered the elves at all because I asked him about it, and he, and he just mentioned how, like, maybe that was what we called the brownies. Because I saw the name elves at one point. I was like, was there anything about elves? And he was like, no. Nah. Well, I think maybe we called brownies elves at one point. I never liked the name brownies. I forget how I got talked into it. They may have been elves for a draft now that I think about it. But clearly there, were, there was actually something else going on. There was some other conflict happening. 
So that's all our behind-the-scenes stuff, but there's one very big piece missing. You mean the Willow Bible that obviously exists out there somewhere? Sure, but Willow's a Lucasfilm blockbuster. We've got to talk about merchandise. Yeah, you know, Doug mentioned the Ebersick toy. There's a lot of odd Willow ephemera out there. And in our next All Willow Watch episode, we're going to chronicle all of our Willow merch discoveries and even dig deeper into our favorite piece of Willow merch, the source book, to prep for our forthcoming discussion with its author. We're also talking about occurrences of Willow in other corners of pop culture and a little bit about those notorious George Lucas, Chris Claremont novels. But that is a complicated story for another time. So thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Willow Watch. Remember, please do rate and review us on iTunes. Leave a review of this episode on Podchaser or send us some support at nerdyshow.com support. We'll see you next time. Bye. I'm Cap. Bye. I'm Doug. Bye. I'm Matt. Willow Watch is a production of Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcast programming at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded and produced in Orlando, Florida at Nerdy Show Studios, home of the Nerdy Show Network, geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. Discover more at nerdyshow.com. Our theme song, Maximum Rebo, was written and performed by Zentilla. Find more awesome tracks at zentilla.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to our Bothan pals in the Star Wars Spoilers Facebook group, the Nerdy Show Network Patreon backers, Dominic Gynex on Willow Watch Archivist duties, and Eric Thawbear. In a lesser writer's hands, you'd have been the main character of Willow, but I think we got something better. The perfect golden boy foil for our misfit characters. And despite it all, Mad Mardigan still won that war for you. Consequence Podcast Network.